0: Hello and welcome to podcast number five of Pastacast, Cast, the advice and discussion show for members of the National Student Television Association, produced by PASTA, the NASTA alumni organisation. This time we're talking technical matters with former NASTA tech officer and now returning officer, Callum Brooks. Now, this podcast is not just for the technically inclined, but for everyone with information on all the fundamental bits and pieces that go into making a good program. I chatted with Callum recently and I began by asking him to explain how best to get your various camera shots to look natural and to all match up by the process known as white balancing.
1: It's based upon this idea that the camera doesn't know what the color white looks like. It has this kind of ability to correct to what you tell it that is, and that's what white balancing is, it's telling it what correction to apply it's based upon this idea of colour temperature, which describes in very basic ways, kind of layman terms, it's a numerical value for how blue or red the colour is. And a low colour temperature is a kind of reddish hue, and a high colour temperature is a kind of bluish hue. Under different lighting conditions, the same white can look different. One of the best ways to kind of describe where this is important is if you go out filming on an overcast day, you'll find that all your shots look quite dark and quite blue. So you can correct for the darkness using the iris, but the blueness you need to colour correct for using white balancing. So that's where it kind of really comes into its own. If you film one set of shots and then you film another set of shots and you haven't white balanced between the two, then you're going to have shots that look very different. It'll be very jarring, which means that you have to come back and colour correct for that in post. And there's no guarantees you can actually do that. So get it right. Do it first time. Remember to white balance.
0: And just on that point, when you say about doing it in post, that's something that you often hear people say, oh, do it in post, sort it out in post, and it's usually just sort of shorthand for do a slapdash job just now, and then hope that there's a magic make it better button in Final Cut or Premiere that's just going to fix everything, but it doesn't work like that.
1: No, not at all, no. I mean, in many cases i mean the magic of post-production gives you options that you can kind of compensate for certain things but ultimately there is there is nothing better than getting it right first time because it will save you hours in post-production and it'll also mean that you've got good quality footage that you can start to do better things with if you've got to start color correcting there's no guarantees that you can Correct for the white balance that you've failed with so you may end up going out in a shoot coming back and having subpar footage that you can't actually fix and post at all.
0: So assuming that you've got your white balancing sorted then the importance of shot composition for example if you are recording an interview with somebody you want to know the difference between your very long shot your long shot your mid shot your close-up and so on that's just something that you can learn early on and then You've got that shorthand to then refer to from there on.
1: Yes, that's true. There are lots of very good YouTube tutorials on it. There's web pages. It's quite a common theme across the industry. Everyone kind of really gets to grips with this kind of terms like mid close, close, extreme long shot. You get the idea. Definitely take the time to learn it because even if now it's just something that you kind of set up a shot and go with it if you decide to go on into industry people are going to use these terms and you'll be expected to understand these so if it is something that you want to go on and do it's a it's a must it's a must have
0: it's worth emphasizing as well if you're interviewing somebody say there's a guest at the uni or whatever it may be and you're understandably nervous about it don't rush it just take your time just maybe an extra 30 seconds or so, to get that shot correctly composed is going to save you a lot of work later on and make it also make, make it look a lot better.
1: Yes, that's definitely true. I mean, there are like, lots of little simple tips just to make your shots look absolutely perfect. For those of you who are wanting to kind of learn the kind of very basics, go and look up the rule of thirds and the 180 degree rule. Those are the kind of the two main things for certainly for interviews anyway that you should definitely know about. And then, of course, you've got things like framing. And uh, there are a couple of other considerations as well. That If you're shooting on a 4.3 camera and you intend to put that to 16.9, you've got to remember which parts of your frame are going to be cut out when you move that into a 16.9 frame. So it's uh, it's important to consider um, not only what you're shooting, but where you're positioning that within your actual shot.
0: This next point can be a little bit tricky. If you are in the middle of a busy shoot, you've got a lot to think about. But... If you're the camera operator working in conjunction with your director you want to think about the shots that you're taking because you also want to make sure it might not be you that's editing this as well so you want to make sure that the shots that you're taking if you're then mixing between a mid shot and a close-up or a far away or whatever it is you want to make sure that all that's going to make sense when somebody else later on
1: down the line has to edit that it's really easy to fall into the trap of filming lots of oh this is pretty and it seems like a really fantastic idea at the time but when you sit down to edit with 60 gigabytes of content suddenly you're regretting that the two hours of footage of artsy trial shots of fields and houses uh, you you start to regret those really quickly so shoot what you can actually use and i mean practice will let you help learn this one of the major things to getting that right is planning your program out beforehand, filming what you want, not what you think you need at the time. So if you've kind of storyboarded in many ways the kind of general plot for what you're trying to film, it'll help you when you actually go out there to go, oh, well, actually, uh, we wanted a shot of this, and you go and get that. It helps you pull together the content that will make your program fantastic rather than just filming lots of things and coming along later and going, oh, we've got this, we should try and use this, and... It just makes everything a much smoother, simpler process if you take the time in advance to plot it out. If you're not editing the footage but you're just shooting it, always remember to sync your audio if you're using sound recorders. Even if you just, uh, it's just a simple case of someone clapping in front of the camera so that the sound recorder will have a, an audio signal that you can match to the video, that's a huge help. But always make sure as well, if you're not going to edit in the footage, that you're identifying clips where possible. And you can get clapperboard apps for that. Heck, even just write down a number on a sheet of paper and then write that down to correspond to something on another piece of paper. That's a, it's a huge help for someone.
0: Can you just explain a little bit about the circumstances in which you would choose between the autofocus on the camera if you'd ever use the autofocus under any circumstances or whether you'd always prefer to use manual focus?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they've both got uses. I mean, autofocus is nice for kind of uh, for moving shots where you've got something that's maybe, you know, circumstances where you are panning quickly. You've got moving subjects. It's got its drawbacks and often that is focusing on the wrong thing. And manual focus allows you that kind of custom shot where you can focus on whatever you want to. The drawback, obviously, is that it requires the user to respond to changes in the focal position. Ultimately, the way to get good at this is to go and practice it. Take the camera out, try focusing on some things in manual, try focusing on some things in auto. Get comfortable with the use of both, and it's a crucial skill if you want to operate a camera, even at a really basic level, to be honest.
0: Anything else that you've seen that is a frequent error when it comes to the camera,
1: be it shot composition or anything else? My pet hate with camera shots is... Well, actually, I've got two. The first one is Dutch Tilt. So you've set up a nice level shot and you're looking at, let's say, a building. And the building is kind of, well, it's 90 degrees to the ground in your shot. Dutch Tilt is when you then take the camera and you start to rotate it slightly. So the building sits a kind of leaning tower of Pisa kind of angle and the ground starts to move slightly. So you've got an angle on it. It's literally just providing a bit of tilt to your shot. And in some cases, when you're filming, let's say, down beside a drummer of a band and you've put a bit of tilt on it so that you, the drummer appears to be kind of a, a, a different angle, that can be all right. But when you're just filming a kind of news documentary, there's no requirement for Dutch Tilt at all. That's an actual pet hate of mine. And the second one is shaky shots when it doesn't require to be. Use the tripod. I can emphasize use of the tripod enough. Invest in a decent one. Often they're really overlooked. The The tripod is it's absolutely important. And also, once you've set your shot up, remember to lock it off. If you want an example of why that goes really wrong, look up BBC Luke North Sinking Presenter, and uh, you'll see all about it.
0: It is something that you see an awful lot. And I suspect that perhaps when people are in a rush, particularly if they're going out to, say, film news footage or something like that, they're thinking, oh, well, I'm going to be embedded anyway. I'm going to be there in the eye of the storm. I'm not going to have time to start setting up a tripod. But... Take it with you anyway, because you don't know. You don't know what circumstances are going to crop up. And especially if you've got an interview that you're about to then conduct with somebody, you really don't want to be doing that with a shaky camera.
1: Yes, that's true. Invest in a, in a decent tripod that you can get a good bag for so that it can just sling over your shoulder. If you can get one that will kind of go across your body like a kind of satchel, um, then you don't really know it's there, but you've got it with you. And that ability just to... If you can see an opportunity to get the tripod out, you know, set yourself up. It really is, honestly, it makes the world of difference to a shot when it's it's nice, it's smooth. There isn't the kind of shaking of a camera operator in the background of it. It just it goes a massive way to making your shots and your footage look far more professional and smooth. And it it's it's a huge huge bonus. Please 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 buy tripods.
0: Okay, moving on to I think it's fair to say this would be student TV's Achilles heel. Sound. Now, first of all, what are the most common
1: mistakes that people make with sound? Well, I mean, I actually did a presentation on sound at NASA 2014 in Loughborough. The kind of common mistakes is, interestingly, forgetting that stereo sound exists and poor quality recordings. And the poor quality recording side of that comes from the fact that people often use the incorrect type of mic. They put the mic in the wrong place. my personal pet hate is holding the mic wrongly. If you're a presenter of a news program... Hold the mic about about a foot to half a foot away from your mouth and point it at your mouth. You don't need to hold it like a rapper. You're not M and M. You're a journalist, and the improvement in the sound quality from holding the mic correctly alone can be a huge difference towards student TV programs.
0: Do you have any theories as to why is this is such a perennial issue? Because it's something that just it just always seems to be there. It's it, it's it's. For whatever reason, it's, it's always, sound is always sort of treated as a sort of the secondary partner.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the major things is that, I mean, at university, a lot of people join student radio or student TV. and The main difference they see with that is, well, this one's got pictures and this one's just sound. And with television, it's really easy just to focus on the pictures. But the human ear can actually pick up very, very, very small breaks in sound. But if you miss a couple of frames, the human eye won't notice that at all. So, actually, interestingly, the the part of the the program that the, the the human body is designed to pick up best on is actually ignored the most. When you've got a a program with very crisp, clear sound, you sh- you don't ever notice that. But when you've got a program with atrocious sound, it's the first thing that people will complain about. It'll make your program literally unwatchable to the viewer and they'll just they'll just turn it off, which is a huge, huge shame.
0: What are some of the different types of microphone that might be available to you and how do you then choose the right one for the right set of circumstances?
1: I mean, the first kind of thing is that you've got tie clip mics. They're for presenters, interviewees. Ideally kind of static interview shots, because generally you'll find that your tie clip mics and student TV tend to be wired. If you can get radio tie clips, you know, you can do a bit of a walk and talk with those. In terms of dynamic microphones, they tend to produce a bit of a natural lift in human vocal frequencies and it makes the voice sound clearer. When you've got this kind of natural lift in human voice, they're very good for if you're doing a let's say you're covering a band, you'd want to give the the vocalist a dynamic microphone because you'll get that lift in the human voice that make their voice just sound that little bit crisper and more clear. And it's also useful where uh, if you've got, let's say a news program and you want a desk microphone for it or a chat program where you want a couple of desk microphones because you're going to be picking up human voices. So it's important to remember there with dynamic microphones, you'll get a, you get a little boost at the human voice with those. And you've also got condenser mics condenser mics you generally have to use kind of indoors because of the way in which they operate those are the kind of three basic kind of types of mic dynamic microphones and condenser microphones you'll um you'll tend to come across uh they're they're your kind of boom mics and your kind of uh your stick mics and kind of physically large mics and your tie clip mics obviously are the kind of um uh, the ones that you see attached to the lapels the other thing to remember about microphones as well is the directionality of those microphones um a lot of people tend to overlook this So if you've got a presenter who just holds the microphone between the two interviewees and you don't pick up the sound of the interviewees because the microphone's not pointed at them, you've got to remember that for each individual microphone, it's either going to pick up everything equally in all directions, which is called omnidirectional, or it's going to have a directionality. So it's important to know the directionality of the microphones you've got and play to that strength.
0: It's worth just emphasising, there's nothing to be worried about in terms of being bamboozled by jargon here because... With with so much of this, be it sound or camera or editing, it's just trial and error. And that's basically what you're going to be doing in your freshers year is you're just going to be trying different bits and pieces out.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, one of the the kind of big things is you get a lot of freshers come into a a station and they instantly just go, oh, well, I, I can't do this. I've never done that before. Just go and try it or ask someone else if they'd come along with you you know it just it really is just about learning trial and error you know but i mean the amount of things i cocked up before i actually managed to start getting things slightly right um, is unreal and just there's no shame in making a mistake so go along help out ask someone if you don't know about something it's the only way you'll learn it and ultimately the skills that you'll gather through student tv you gain over a long process every day is a school day really
0: So any last thoughts on sound, particularly the best ways to handle the mic, any other little tips or tricks that you've got?
1: One of the kind of really big things that bothers me is this kind of constant quest to hide microphones. You don't need to hide your microphones at all. Audiences prefer clear audible productions compared to having a hidden mic. So if you put a desk mic on a table during an interview, it's not the end of the world. If you can see the tie clip, it's not the end of the world. If you watch the news, for example, you can see the tie clip mics. You can see the desk mics. People are used to it already. There's this constant quest to hide your microphones. You don't have to do it. If you can get good sound by having a microphone in shot that looks kind of unobtrusive, go with it. It'll work. Your tie clip mic placement as well... Um, Make sure to watch out for things like people's hair, scarves, jackets rubbing on it, because ultimately, the second it rubs, you get a horrible wind noise out of it, and your microphone and your sound recording is just is gone. Get your microphones in closer as well, because closer mics mean you can need to put less uh, less gain on in post or your live mixing. And less gain, very briefly, just means it's less stretching of your audio signal, which means you're going to get less distortion out of that, less artifacts and imperfections in your sound quality. And uh, just remember not to get them too close, though, because if you get really close to the pressure source of the sound, then you're going to get the proximity effect, which is uh, where all the very low notes of your sound get a real boom and a boost out of it. It makes the sound sound really kind of low and boomy and horrible. So... It's just about finding a kind of optimum distance that's as close as you can get them, to be honest. The last little thing I'd say is about stereo mic pairing. There's a lot to go into with that. There's lots of brilliant web tutorials about it, and it makes a huge improvement in your audio quality if you can get good stereo sound out of it. It's not hard to do. All you need is two mics and a sound recorder for it, and you can get some really good effects by bothering to do stereo sound. People in student television tend to just record in mono, and they fill left, they fill right, which just means that, interestingly, they're thinking about stereo sound. They know they have to fill both channels, but they're not actually recording for it. So it's a it's a huge, huge bonus to your programming if you could get good quality stereo sound. But nobody really tends to bother with it. If you can remember to do that on your shoots, you'll get a you'll get a huge a huge bonus out of this.
0: Okay, so let's look at the third element that most people in student TV will get involved in at some point, and that's the edit. What are some good Habits to get into things that are universal, regardless of whether you are using Premiere or Final Cut, as I suspect most stations are. The odd station may be using Avid, for example. But what kind of universal habits are good to get into early on with regard to an edit?
1: The kind of first thing I'd say is don't overuse gimmicky effects, it makes your programs look cheap and tacky. I mean, if you're looking at a good, good example. If you're listening to music, say on YouTube, and occasionally the producer puts a kind of um, a little eye at the front just to kind of mark out that they are the person who's put the music video online, it looks a bit kind of cheap and tacky. And you actually physically notice that. And that's what other people see when you're using these horrible tacky effects. It shows edit skills, but it detracts from the quality of the program ultimately. I would say the most important thing to remember about effects is to use them where they're required and use them where they have effect in your program, but not for the sake of having an effect ultimately good editing is about taking what you've got and telling a story with that and set out a message you want viewers to take away and edit to convey that message it's uh it's really easy to fall into the trap of editing a story together and going oh that's that's what we'll have them take home sit down and think you know let's say you filmed a music festival and you want people to take away from that what happened at the music festival and how fun it was that's your goal edit to tell that message tell that story because ultimately, um, that's the point of editing is being able to convey the message and tell the story. As far as kind of technical tips go, edit locally where possible. That's uh, editing from footage on the same machine. Because if you are doing it across the, from an archive, it's really easy to fall into the trap of going, oh, well, my footage is on the archive, I'll just edit from it there. You're using up the transfer bandwidth between your computer and the archive. But also, um, it'll be a slower editing process for you because every time you want to do something with a file, the computer has to transfer it across the network in order to be able to do that. If you edit locally, it'd be quicker, and it'd be much less of a drag on anyone else trying to use the archive at the same time. Whenever you've got a project, don't just dump files into the bin, sort them into little folders, you know, however, how you choose to do that is up to you. You can come up with your own kind of way of, you know, saying, maybe you'll have clips, audio, pictures, you know, or maybe you'll have stuff for, you know, section one, section two, section three. However you want to do that's up to you, but Keep it nice and tidy, it'll help you in the long run. Make sure as well that any files you've actually got on the computer, not just your kind of project bin, make sure you keep them nice and tidy, you know, so segregate them off, you know, so have a folder for you on the computer that you can put your stuff in. And when you're finished with things, delete them off it or move it to the archive, because ultimately you're just going to start clogging the computer with stuff that you don't need anymore. With your sound remember to uh, to master your sound to minus 18 decibel full scales. So that's uh, minus 18 on the little green meters that you've got because that's the kind of industry standard at the moment. Or if you can get a hold of it, a uh, loudness unit meter, so you can edit to uh, minus 23 luffs, which is also plus or minus 1 LU uh, because that'll make sure that your audio is in standard with uh, everyone else in the industry. And a good example of where you'll notice that is if someone watches something on iPlayer that's been mastered to minus 18 dBFS and they turn their volume up to listen to that, they'll listen to that program. And then if they decide to watch one of your things, which has been edited to minus 6 dBFS, all of a sudden they're going to get blasted with sound that's four times the volume. So if you remember to master to minus 18 dBFS, it'll put your audio uh, in line with the kind of industry standards. Like I said, if you can get a hold of it, Loudness unit monitoring is great, but ultimately um, kind of an easy solution for student TV minus 18 dBFS is fine.
0: Tell us a little bit about the importance of balancing your audio, particularly if you've got a program, say, where you've got people talking with silence in the background, and then suddenly you're going to cut to a clip of, say, a music video or something like that. How do you then make sure that you don't have massive peaks and troughs in the audio levels throughout that program?
1: ultimately it's about this kind of mastering process so that when you're um when you're listening to kind of footage so let's say you've you've edited a sequence together and you start playing it through and if you've got an interview and then you cut to a bit of music video you're going to get a huge boost in that um the sound of the audio let's say so you've got to remember that when you come across these things in your edit, to just start to correct for it and make sure that if you've got your uh, your interview and then you've got your music video, the the decibel meters on the right-hand side of the monitor or wherever you've put them, they're peaking at about the same kind of level. So if you've got uh, an interview section and it's peaking at kind of, let's say, minus, uh, let's go with minus 16 dBFS, um, and you've got another bit that's, you know, peaking at kind of minus 20, you might want to either boost one of the bits so you kind of reduce the other ones so and everything sits nice and level because that'll mean that when people listen to your program it's a much smoother viewing process than it is uh, to listen to something that kind of boosts and goes quiet again so they have to keep turning the volume up and down to listen to the program in the way they want.
0: Okay so before we wrap up is there any kind of sort of like fail-safe sort of little mantra or anything that you can sort of say whereas if Somebody, be them, be they a fresher or second or third year or whatever they may be, if going out, camera, tripod, a microphone, going out to do a shoot, what things should they be thinking of throughout, from white balancing onwards?
1: The one thing I would ultimately say is that if you go out with a a, a shoot and you know you've got a kind of program to put together, think about what you want, think about what opportunities you might get during the course of that. Think about the kind of quality of the program you're putting together. So you need to think about your video, so what you're looking at on screen. When you're looking at things through your camera, you know, you've got to remember to white balance, you've got to set the iris, your focus, your zoom, all of these things. You've got to think about your sound, where you're putting your microphones, how you're recording your sound. Are you doing it through the camera, are you doing it through a sound recorder? It's something that you learn with practice. So, I mean, go out, film some things, come back, make the mistake, and then in the future you'll know not to do that again. Student TV should be fun, it's a learning curve. Don't be too afraid to make mistakes, that's all I can tell you is is the best bit of advice. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. The best bit of advice I can give you is just Google is your friend. Go and look these things up. There are some fantastic web tutorials on basically everything in the film and TV industry. So if you've got any issues with things that you want to go and look up, go and look it up. Find a YouTube tutorial. There's always, always, always someone who's written something about it.
0: My thanks to Callum Brooks. And we'll return to technical topics later in the month here on the Pastacast. Meanwhile, next week we'll be chatting with Andrew Cheatham former NASA development officer and head of LSTV on the tricky subject of people's skills, how to get the best from your team, whether you're station manager or if you're in charge of a particular programme-making group. If you'd like to contact us or if you have an idea for a future podcast, you can find us on Twitter at NASA alumni. Meanwhile, thanks for listening to The Pass the Cast.